Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week, we're talking about alternative investments. We're going to cover everything from real estate, crypto, hedge funds, what they are, and do they fit in a portfolio. This episode is kind of a piggyback off an episode we recently did on our investment manifesto. Justin, you want to run it back for our listeners and just kind of give a brief overview of what we talked about last time? Absolutely. Uh, Investment Manifesto, I would encourage you to uh, listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Uh, It just gives a great look into how do we invest our money? How do we invest clients' money? And uh, what are the foundational principles that govern our investment philosophy? So everything from markets are efficient. You cannot time the market. You want global exposure. You want to make sure. So in other words, uh, investing just in the S&P 500 is a very limited experience when you think about every publicly traded stock that is available to you. And so the Investment Manifesto dives into all of that and uh, also talks about uh, why we don't purely index. Uh, We do love index funds. We love index ETFs. I believe the single largest position in our portfolio is an index ETF. Uh, huge fan of Vanguard, Jack Bogle. And so typically when you think about markets being efficient, not timing the market and uh, paying close attention to the fees that you pay in investments, usually that leads you right to index funds. But we do not purely index. And we're pretty passionate about not purely indexing. And there's a reason for that. Uh, So Investment Manifesto dives into all of that. I would encourage you to listen to it, but I'm excited about this episode because we get to talk about several Pretty exciting topics, Jared, just like you mentioned. I want to talk about how do you and I think about uh, starting our own business? Um, And so our personal balance sheets are heavily, heavily invested in a very small business, Brownlee Wealth Management. So you think about investing in Apple, Microsoft, Google, Netflix. That's a completely different experience than your own business. So how do we think about that when allocating capital? How do we think about real estate, private equity, hedge funds, crypto? all of those things. I'm excited to uh, chat about it. Yeah, it'll be a good conversation because in some instances, it's juxtaposed to some of our core investment principles. A lot of these are higher cost products, less diversified, more concentrated exposures. So it's really, really interesting kind of ebb and flow. So Justin, let's. I, I think it's good to give our listeners a context of where we're coming from. So you want to talk a little bit about how we came to have such an outsized position in in the firm we're building and, and how, how that changes how we think about our investment portfolios and household investments. Absolutely. If you follow our articles, if you follow us on LinkedIn, you probably have heard us talk extensively about uh, mega backdoor Roth contributions. So if you are in a 401k and you're looking for additional places to save and invest above and beyond the annual limit. Uh, We're huge fans of dumping another $30,000 into your 401k each year as an after-tax contribution, converting it to a Roth eventually where it grows tax-free. Now, if you follow my content on that and and you've read some of the articles we've posted on that topic, we typically, I, I think every time we've given a disclaimer that 
if you're planning to start a business in the next handful of years, that would be a massive reason why you wouldn't do that. And so qualified retirement plans are incredible because if you're making a high income and you have the ability to save 20, 25, 30% of your income when you count employer match on top of that, you're going to reach financial independence very quickly. And the greatest way to do that is to pay attention to your after-tax returns, which generally mean loading up HSA, loading up 401k, backdoor Roth 401k, backdoor Roth IRA, and taking the most of those tax advantages. But we always give that disclaimer. If you're going to leave your company within the next couple of years and you're going to start your own business, that may not be a good idea. And so you think about that and, and I think about our personal experience uh, and I can I can speak personally. Uh, I love being transparent about this. Uh, well, being transparent about two things. Jared and I, when we invest our own funds, it's really important to us that we invest our funds just like we invest our client funds. So I think it would I think it would just be a, a massive red flag. If you're talking to a financial advisor who has his own portfolio in a bunch of random leverage funds or, or funds that are shorting the market, and then he's selling you a low cost index portfolio, I think it would just be a huge red flag, a, a pretty big problem if your advisor was investing in a portfolio that's just severely different than, than what he's putting his clients into or her clients into. And so that that's the first thing I want to hit on that you know, our personal investments, it's really important to us that it's invested just like we invest clients money. Uh, we want to eat our own cooking and pretty passionate about that. The second thing I love being transparent about is that I have a huge portion of my personal balance sheet in Brownlee Wealth Management. Let me get specific. Uh, let me pull the curtain back a little bit. Um, I rated a huge portion of our savings, our retirement accounts, um, even sold our house and put the proceeds, use those proceeds to build Brownlee Wealth Management. And so you think about that and that is very different than investing in a passive low cost portfolio when you're thinking about compounding your money for decades. That's the first thing. I want to be really transparent and uh, I, I enjoy talking about it. I think it's a fascinating topic. Uh, why, why have Jared and I done that? Um, so yeah, where do you want to go from here, Jared? No, I mean, I, I would just add to that, you know, I a material percent of my net worth invested in the company as well, but I think it's important, you know, when you thinking about position sizing, right. A, a material amount of our net worth is tied to this business, but we have a lot of autonomy and control in the business and what we're building. And what we're, what we're about to talk about here is when you invest in these asset classes, you're not in the driver's seat. You're usually a limited partner. You're a silent partner, a passive investor. So you don't have the same autonomy to say, hey, let's let's make this decision or this decision. I need liquidity now. You being a passive investor in these vehicles and not, you know, not a general partner, you lose optionality and you lose control. So that being said, you want to size your positions accordingly. And this is all caveated with these these more exotic investments. It's 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 almost a story of the tortoise and the hare. I guess you know a diversified investor probably wants both, but our investment principles are a long term compounding machine: buy low, stay invested, and let compounding do the work. What we're talking about here is just adding additional forms of diversification and just changing the structure of of your portfolio, which 
you know, personally, it depends on your risk tolerance, but I, I don't think you begin introducing or seriously thinking about these investments until you've really done a good job covering those other bases or the investment you're making. You have, you're, you're participating in an outsized way and have control over it. I think that's a great thought. I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts and I want to answer this for myself as well, but I want to get your answer to this question. How did you think about, so I guess it's, you know, over a year ago when we started discussing and, and you made the decision to join Brownlee Wealth Management as an equity partner. How did you think about that investment? Yeah. You know, I thought about it from a few dimensions of entrepreneurship of like the, the first mechanism is like, am I excited about this? Right. Cause financial planning really is that is, you know, it's not optimizing for finances, it's optimizing for your life and considering the finances, right? And this seemed like a great opportunity to build something really special with you. And so because of that and the opportunity that I was going to have, I figured out how to kind of make the finances work. But as I thought about my age as an investor, uh, I'm in my late 20s, and I thought about my risk tolerance being this being a risk, but a little less risky than starting a firm from scratch by myself because we uh, at the time I'd come on, we already had a decent base of clients. So those were two things that led me to think, hey, and, and the prior businesses I'd worked for were all small boutique firms. So I was used to having my hands in lots of parts of the businesses and being able to do it. So it was a skill alignment thing. I had kind of control over the direction, but it wasn't quite as risky as what Justin did. And, you know, Justin and I would have conversations. He's probably more risk seeking than even I am. So when I joined the firm is kind of consistent with my risk tolerance. I would say it's high, but not quite as high as Justin's. Yeah, I think you hit on a really critical point there because if you're listening to this podcast, there's a ton of people out there that, you know, have the thought, do I want to start my own business at some point? Would I rather own a business instead of being an employee? So I think you hit on something that's so critical as you examine that. You were stepping into you well, one, you were stepping into a business, but then you were stepping into a specific role inside that business that you had huge experience with. You had worked at multiple small investment firms and you had been an advisor to several small investment firms. And so I, I think that's critical to point out. You had extensive experience, uh, not just in the type of business that you started, but in the exact role that you were going to be in in that business. One thing I would add, uh, Jared just uh, mentioned that I you know, technically took on more risk than Jared even. Um, so before Jared was a partner, I started this business on my own. And so as a result of that, uh, there was no revenue. This was from scratch. Uh, so how did I think about that? How did, how did my wife Lauren and I begin to weigh the pros and cons and ultimately make that decision to move forward? I think the biggest thing, the, the number one thing I want to communicate about starting your own business was we were okay if it didn't work out. One thing I tell clients a lot is that our job as CFPs, as financial planners, we have got to ask the question, what is the worst case scenario and how do we mitigate it? How do we plan for it? And to a certain degree, are we okay with the worst case scenario, right? And my wife, Lauren and I, we had to ask and answer that question. Um, what's the worst case scenario and are we okay with it? Is it worth it? Is the worst case scenario worth it? And so for us, it was essentially, hey, we're going to raid a lot of our retirement accounts. We're going to raid our savings. And there's a chance we were going to sell our house. And as I mentioned, we, we did. We, we ended up selling our house. And so we have just put an incredible amount into this business. And you know, part of that did go into, Jared, you mentioned you were in your, your late 20s. 
I'm in my early mid thirties. And so similar position where the worst case scenario was we lost, we would lose potentially a ton of money and, you know, lose a lot of money and be in our mid thirties and have to kind of start over. So that was the worst case scenario. And obviously the upside, we also wanted to be optimistic and, and ask, Hey, what is the upside here? And the upside needed to be significant. Um, it needed to be worth that risk. I think we talked in our investment manifesto, when you invest in a small company, historically, small companies have just done significantly better than large companies. Fascinating point there. Significantly better just means maybe 2% better per year, but compounded over decades, 2% is a kind of just a massive, massive number. So small companies, they're more risky and in an efficient market, you make more money when you take on more risk. So what's critical to, to ask, what's the worst case scenario? Are we okay with it? And the upside, what is the upside? Is the upside considerably higher? And we decided that it was. Uh, and so ultimately that's, that's a lot of our thinking that went into it that, Hey, it's, it's okay. And, and it's, it's worth taking this risk and, and, and taking this step. And fortunately, I mean, you know, it's, it's gone significantly better than we could have hoped. And here's another point, Jared, you kind of alluded to this, but it's also, it's something that we have control over. And I say that lightly. I mean, you, you don't have control over so many things in life that you think you do. Um, but what I mean by that is it's not just about the investment. It's also about creating my day-to-day -day job and career, right? And so I wanted to create my ideal working situation. Uh, so it's, it's part of, part of this decision was above and beyond the investment side of it. And part of it was, Hey, I'm also really excited about creating what my career life will look like rather than letting another company that I work for dictate that for me. Yeah. I would almost put that sleeve, that category of alternatives. It, it, it requires a totally different kind of logic, right? Where you have control, you have autonomy, you have a vested interest, and there's tangible life benefits as you move closer to getting to your purpose, right? And so I would I would see that that category of alternative different than the alternatives we're going to talk about. Because as being a silent partner in private equity or hedge funds doesn't do the same, uh, doesn't cha really change your day-to-day -day that much. Maybe if the investment you know, returns out of the park, you have some additional spending money or if, or if it goes to zero, but the range of outcomes in your life, it really, really won't move the needle like entrepreneurship will. So I think that's a good place to start because we're, we're kind of talking about active investments where you have a lot of control over the business and a lot of these alternatives don't. But the one, the one caveat though is real estate, right? Because there's a bunch of different ways you can participate in real estate, right? You can direct investment where you have a rental property or you have a piece of parcel of land, a piece of farmland, something like that. Or you can buy investment products. You could buy REITs that are kind of passively traded that are exposed to different sectors of the real estate market. So you can get, you can really directly invest in that, or you can buy a fund that invests in a variety of different categories within the real estate asset class. So I feel like that, that'd be a good place to start, Justin. What, what are your thoughts related to real estate investing and, and where it fits into a client portfolio? Let's talk two things. First, let's talk direct real estate. So I'm talking, should you go buy tangible real estate and uh, build it yourself? The second topic would be uh, real estate, like we invest our, our money and our clients' money in, uh, in a passive real estate fund. Okay, so first topic, direct real estate. 
I just want to spend a short amount of time and, and tell you how much I love direct real estate as an investment. And then I'm going to also disclose that uh, I don't own any and I'm not really interested in ever owning any, which could change. But okay. So first thing, why do I love real estate? Why is it such an unbelievable investment? You get to purchase real estate with debt. Shout it from the rooftops. That's the beginning, middle, and end. You get to use leverage so easily with real estate relative to other investments. It's just not nearly as easy to go to a bank and get a loan or go to a brokerage house and get a loan where you can put almost no money down, um, a small percentage down, 20% down, which is still a really small percentage. You're, you're borrowing 80% of the asset price. That's considered a safe conservative move to put 20% down. There's a number of real estate investors that, that got their start putting way less than 20% down. And so why is real estate such an unbelievable asset class to invest in? Well, it's, it's because you're able to use debt and debt magnifies, leverage magnifies a bad investment into being a unbelievably catastrophic, horrible investment. Uh, but debt also magnifies a good investment into being really, really, really good. And so that's my, that's my first pitch on it. Uh, just that I think, I think that's why real estate is so incredible as a direct investment because you're able to use so much leverage. Yeah. And I would also add there that the way the tax code is written up, it provides a lot of, uh, incentives or, or opportunities to optimize and take advantage to reduce the cost of ownership and to take advantage of some depreciation strategies and 1031 exchanges. So in addition to leverage where you can create outsized, you know, make outsized bets, uh, I think that's another compelling thing is, is the way the tax code is written up. But kind of alluding to what Justin said, there's a lot of people who have made an absolute killing in real estate, but a lot of people have... Uh, gotten crushed by it. Uh, and it's, and it's a very cyclical asset. So I would size positions accordingly. And Justin, I'd be curious and I'll answer why I think, and then you can clarify, but one of the things about direct real estate investment is the time involved, right? So that's another consideration is not just a capital investment, right? If, if you are directly owning real estate, you are likely managing the property. You are serving as the landlord or delegating that to somebody in and taking a cut and it's reducing, reducing your margin. So you need to think about where does that fit into my plan and, and would I enjoy doing that? Some people who are retirees find that to be, you know, a great way to kind of remain involved in work. And some people wouldn't want to do it if it was the, if it was the last job available. So on top of all this, you know, direct investment and taking advantage of this as an investment opportunity, you know, you need to think about the practical implications of your life and how that impacts it. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Uh, tax advantage is just completely unbelievable, uh, by the way. So incredible tax opportunities with real estate. Let me make a really quick point there. I am not nearly as big of a fan as being a direct real estate investor in a self-directed IRA. I think it's okay if that's where all your money is and that's the only way you can make it work. But the tax advantages are so much better if you buy real estate outside of an IRA. And so, uh, yeah, depreciation in some of the some of the exchanges there. Now we will also have some content on this. Very likely that some of those tax benefits are changed in uh, upcoming legislation. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But to your point, yeah, just huge advantages there with real estate. Oh, I want to mention something. You you mentioned uh, it, it's so time intensive. Even if you delegate this, even if you buy a bunch of rental properties and you have a management company do it, I mean, it's still your asset. You have to pick, research, manage, 
and oversee whatever management company you you select. I mean, it is your job. So for that reason, I like to say a couple of things. If you execute real estate well and you're investing in an area that doesn't crash completely, I mean, you're probably going to do exceptionally well if you can manage a real estate portfolio well. And let me get even more specific. You're probably going to make a lot more money than you will investing in the stock market because we're not going to put you in something that is, is leveraged to the gills with enormous amounts of debt like real estate is. Uh, so again, if real estate goes well and you have a significant amount of debt in that investment, well, it's it's going to do extraordinarily well. But I think I mentioned this five minutes ago. I'm not interested in buying real estate. And the reason is, Jared, what you just said. I already own a business and, and I you know, am putting an exceptional amount of time into this business. And so I'm just not looking for a second business. Uh, that could change at some point. Uh, I love real estate as an asset class, as an investment. Absolutely love it. Uh, but I already have a business and I'm not not looking to get a second one at this time. Yeah. And liquidity too, that that fits into this as well, right? Because direct investing in real estate, you you know, you can't just up and decide one day, hey, I'm done and then go to the go to the market and exchange it at whatever price the the home fund is trading at. You know, it's 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 an intensive process to unwind that. So liquidity also factors into this. But Justin, you touched on a great thing. Like the grid at which you look at all of these investments is can I stomach the risk? Is the range of outcomes, you know, on the good side and the bad side worthwhile? And do I have the liquidity? With with all of these positions, you know, I don't know what the percentage is for you, but it should be a minority percentage. And and I don't even know the dollar amount at which you begin considering these, but if you're not maxing out retirement plans and have a sufficient emergency fund, I I wouldn't I wouldn't even tackle any of this right now. Great point. And still, we are huge believers. Uh, we put in our portfolios a real estate position. And so you do not have to buy leveraged rental homes or, or commercial real estate or warehouses or however you want to invest in real estate. You don't have to buy physical buildings or physical land. Uh, you can purchase passive funds. And the investment world over the last 20 years has just gotten so much better for the average investor. You're able to get significant portions of your real estate exposure through low cost funds that do a great job. And so every one of our clients, we're huge believers in including real estate as part of your portfolio. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about private equity, hedge funds, direct lending, the more exotic investments where you kind of select a manager and there there's private deals and these funds are less liquid. Talk a little bit about what they are, Justin, and then kind of some of your, some of your thoughts related to them. Great. Um, okay. So thinking about hedge funds, the idea there is, is really just found in the name hedge. You're looking to get a different type of investment than the public markets uh, can give you. And so, you know, there is that famous bet, a uh, famous wager between Warren Buffett and um, Ted Sides. Uh, I don't remember. Okay, Ted Sides. Yeah, and the the bet was you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Who's going to win over a ten year period? Is it going to be a hedge fund that Ted picks, or is it going to be the S and P five hundred that Warren Buffett was picking? And you know Warren Buffett just absolutely dominated that bet. The S and P five hundred did significantly better uh, than the hedge fund or hedge funds that Ted picked. But I also want to provide a grain of salt there. I mean, I. I'm not even totally convinced that a hedge fund should necessarily uh, be compared 
uh, to a public index in the same manner because maybe you're maybe you're in a hedge fund because you're trying to hedge. You're trying to have a very different investment experience. Now, when the S and P 500 quadruples over a 10 year period, a uh, different investing experience is probably not a good thing. Let's talk about private equity. I feel like private equity is kind of the the sexiest of the uh, alternative investments of the last five to 10 years. Private equity has done extremely well. It's been extremely popular. I want to point out point out two things. So private equity on the first thing I want to say is that um, it it really has to be approached in a completely different manner than public investing. So when I say public investing, just think a portfolio that we would manage, typical traditional uh, stock market bond investing. Uh, so that could be index funds or ETFs or mutual funds, traditional investments that go into the public stock markets, uh, whether in the U.S. or international. Private equity is very different, and so it needs to be approached in a different manner. So the public markets, when when we build a portfolio, one of the first things we said in the investment manifesto, the market is efficient. You cannot time the market. Nobody knows which stocks are going to go up, which stocks are going to go down. The highest paid analyst at Goldman Sachs has access to the same information as a 15-year-old in Bangladesh. Um, and so you there, there's just this notion of there's these incredible investors on Wall Street and, and they know which, which companies are going to win and which are going to lose. There's just not a lot of evidence that that is a uh, widespread truth. Now, private equity is a little bit different. And what I mean by that is private equity skill matters. And the company, the, the firm that, that you're investing with will likely matter a great deal. And so it, it requires, the first thing I want to mention, private equity requires a different mindset than the portfolios we're managing. Uh, and specifically, it, it might be worth paying a, a higher fee to Bain Capital uh, for a private equity fund compared to just a random group of, of Rice graduates in Houston that are running a private equity firm. No offense to Rice, but it, it, it could easily be worth paying a, a better firm uh, like Bain Capital to do that because they may be better at what they're doing um, than a lesser private equity firm. So it requires a different focus. And uh, the difficulty that that brings is the second thing I want to mention with private equity. It may not make sense until you hit 5 million or even 10 million in assets. And the reason for that, if you're investing with a really excellent private equity fund with a great track record, a lot of times they're going to have a million dollar minimum to be in one of those funds. And your money may not be liquid for a decade. Uh, so you may not be able to tap into that for a long, long time. So at what point, I mean, if, if someone came to us and they had two and a half million dollars and they're asking us, should we put 1 million of our two and a half into a private equity fund that, that isn't going to be liquid for the next seven, eight years? I mean, my answer is probably a, a relatively emphatic no, uh, you should not do that. And I know you've got some opinions on this topic, Jared. So I'd love to love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. I think one of the big things that you need to keep in mind is understanding how professionals allocate money. So if you think about these more exotic investment investment products, there are investment teams that source all these various private equity, hedge fund, direct lending opportunities, and there's teams that full-time look for the best managers. So one of the things that's really tough about, you know, finding a manager, it's a full-time job to understand what kind of manager to select and their credentials and their track record and their investment process. So the learning curve is way steeper to identify a good 
investment in this space. And there's also another important caveat here too. There's a strategy out of favor or is it a bad strategy? So if you look at uh, a good example of this is Warren Buffett. He's he's not an alternative investor, but he's had a great investment strategy and has crushed his benchmark over an extended period of times. But there have been significant times uh, in the past few years being one of them where he has underperformed a benchmark when when growth was screaming because he's a value-oriented investor. So I think he made an outsized bet and won more than he lost. And over the long time, it made a material difference in his in his ability to beat the market. But there were bouts of underperformance where he lost. Where that's related is a lot of people turned on Warren Buffett when he was underperforming saying he has a bad strategy. No, his strategy was good. It was just out of favor at that time. And the market was going to reward him for staying patient and disciplined. So as you're looking at alternative investments, some that are down, some that are up, the past two, three, four years, those don't really matter. If you believe in the longevity of the strategy and the data is robust over decades, there are going to be periods where you underperform. So performance isn't, it matters, but it's not the only thing, especially short-term performance when you're sourcing these investments and trying to make sense of them. That's something, a caveat that that I would say is uh, really important. And another thing, how these people allocate money is like private equity is a great example. They make a lot of bets knowing that a lot of them are going to fail and a few are going to hit it out of the park, right? So the attribution of private equity funds is is really, really top heavy. There's a few that are winners and the vast majority never go anywhere. So as you're looking at and sourcing these investments, you also need to understand the diversification mechanism of them because if it's a really concentrated bet and you look at private equity returns and how lopsided they are, the odds aren't in your favor at that point. Yes. I do want to share a a stat that is just really, really fascinating. 20 years ago, there were about, I want to say just over 8,000 or about 7,500 publicly traded companies in America. So as a country, almost 8,000 publicly traded companies 20, 25 years ago. Today, uh, there's about half that number. That's, That's really compelling. Um, And so over the past 20 years, the number of publicly traded companies has gone down significantly. Part of that is because of mergers and acquisitions. And so we do have a market capitalization effect where the publicly traded companies today are significantly larger um, than publicly traded companies 20 years ago. But there is, I do want to mention, there is this force where to a certain degree, America is going private. And so... You know, it is easy for fee-only financial planners uh, to to kind of get on an article or podcast and just say that the only answer to anything is a, is a low-cost, globally diversified portfolio. And you know, we just we believe in that in a, in a really, really emphatic way, and uh, we've got significant reasons why we believe in that. But I do think as your net worth passes five million, and really more so as it passes ten million you need to begin to entertain the question or at least ask why. Uh, why should I be in private equity, direct lending, hedge funds, or, or why should I not be? And so I, I do think there's going to be opportunities and I do think these asset classes are going to get more popular uh, because American companies like staying private. And I, I think there's going to be a trend where I, I don't think that's going to reverse. I don't think we're going to have 8,000 publicly traded companies in 10 years from now. I think America is going to continue to stay private in many cases. That's a great point, Justin. And the when a company does go public, their size, inflation adjusted, is significantly larger than uh, companies that went public in the past. And this is because 
private markets are so robust. In the in the 1920s, if you wanted to raise capital, the stock market was one of the easiest ways to go, right? Information the information highway didn't exist, the internet wasn't available. So, you know, in terms of optionality, it, it just it didn't exist. So it was the natural, natural inclination and it was just an easier thing. But now our our private markets are so developed that you could say private for longer, which creates opportunity for those companies is, is they really, is they really grow, uh, and smaller companies do grow. And we, we believe that, but you know, accessing them in a low, low cost, efficient way is important. You know, I, I think some of these asset classes are related to, that's an incredible point about why companies are staying private, uh, longer. And I think one of the tangents to that or a related point is direct lending. So you've got all these small private companies and another great way to access capital is to borrow. And interest rates are extremely low. And so even if you're borrowing in a non-traditional format, which is essentially what direct lending is, you're gonna pay a higher interest rate, but it makes sense. It's still a historically a, a great rate. And if you're the bank in that scenario, so if you are the lender in direct lending, well, a bond fund is uh, it could give you as low as 2% a year right now uh, with how low interest rates are. And I don't know if you should really have an expectation of significantly more than that if you're in a basic bond index. I think direct lending is, is going to be something that continues to grow in popularity as well. Uh, because I think, I think real estate comes in here as well, but people are going to be looking for yield and it's just, it's tough to stomach the idea that you're going to have an enormous position in bonds that are paying two, 3% a year or less. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's kind of a good, let's, uh, let's migrate to crypto assets. This is a very interesting alternative investment. The, the newest of the alternative investments we mentioned, and just a very, it's an interesting thing advisors are scrambling, trying to figure it out and make sense of it. It's making, there's a lot of buzz and speculation feels kind of late nineties ish where a lot of, uh, NFTs are on the scene and prices are just accelerating and FOMO is just, is kicking in. Justin, I'd be curious to think kind of, what are your thoughts on crypto assets? Cause you know, cryptocurrency is a misnomer that some of these assets have exposure to various protocols or lending decentralized finance platforms. There's, there's a lot of ways to invest in the space. So we're going to use the term crypto assets, which is inclusive of things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs. Uh, but Justin, you want to kick us off? What do you think about the space and what thoughts you have for our, our listeners? Yeah, I think the first thing I want to mention is, um, I mean, if, if we're just going super generalities here, I'm very bullish on it in general. And I'm excited to see how the SEC, how state securities boards continue to evolve and just some investment products. Um, uh, potentially, you know, I think there could be a lot of crypto ETFs, that type of thing. And so as some of this stuff evolves, I think it'll be interesting to see traditional investment advisory firms incorporating crypto into client portfolios in an easier manner. Uh, it really hasn't been easy at all up to this point. Uh, for the most part, it's really been something that uh, it needs to be held outside, um, held on the side. And so in a general sense, just just very, very bullish. Um, I mean, decentralized uh, finance, just the entire idea in all of the different manifestations of where that can go. Um, I think it's here to stay. Um, what are your thoughts? And then let's talk about some of the you know potential downsides. Yeah, I think 
I, you know, I'm very bullish on the space. I think we're in the early innings of just understanding the application and, and the disruption that's going to happen from the decentralized nature of everything, uh, which is Ethereum being open architecture, smart contract platform, where you can build infrastructure on top of that, uh, really becomes, you know, another dimension of, of the internet and Bitcoin being just a good store of value, a distributed ledger that's, you know, verifiable, trustless, permissionless, that just kind of exists in a centralized place. I think those those ideas in and of themselves are really interesting and something we want to stay attuned to. So the prices have already accelerated, right? And some of it's probably speculation, but some of it's institutions adopting and kind of coming to the same conclusions of, hey, I don't fully understand this, but I but I believe in the ideas and I don't understand their application. So I'm going to expose a little bit of my money to it. A couple of things that I don't really that give me cause related to this space. It's really difficult to invest in it, right? Especially in a diversified manner. There's not, things aren't generally available. Like as an investment advisor, your options of purchasing these assets are, are very limited. And you only have to pick one or two. I, I don't know how many coins there are now. I think 11,000 11, at this point and beyond. And that's just coins, not decentralized platforms, things that sit on top of Ethereum. So there's a lot There's a lot there. And getting educated on all of it's it, it's its own universe. So it's it's not really easy to, to make a low-cost kind of passive investment into the space because uh, we don't know. We don't know what coins are going to win and what aren't. That's another thing I don't like about it. And storage is another thing because all of this stuff exists on the internet. It's ripe for fraudulent activity or for hacking. So you really have to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed in terms of understanding the risks and the nature uh, and just kind of having the proper security measures in place so that uh, you don't lose those funds if you are going to participate in it. In terms of sizing, it would be any money you're comfortable losing. If you've been following this for any amount of time, you've seen how much volatility exists. And you know, I anticipate that will continue because it's a really speculative, speculative asset class. But volatility, you know, if you can stomach it, it, it oftentimes yields good returns. So this, like all other investments, you should size your positions accordingly. And, and I wouldn't put any money in it that you're not comfortable losing. I think that's well put. Um, I think the only thing I would add to that is that, you know, in the stock market, we've seen pretty emphatically that you're going to have some really, really big winners that eventually go to zero. Uh, so Investment Manifesto, we talked about this. The original S&P 500 only has about 10, 15% of the original 500 members in the, in the index. So the vast, vast majority of the original 500 companies had such a catastrophic loss or they went bankrupt and they're out of the index. That same thing is going to happen um, in crypto. You're going to see some positions that rise and then catastrophically fall. And I'm not, I'm not making a prediction on, on a specific one. Um, as I said, I'm really bullish on the, on the space as a whole. Uh, but uh, that's just, that's not immune. Um, this space is not immune from seeing that same thing happen. And so I, I can tell right now, though, I feel like we just need to put a bow on this, uh, that we're going to need to do significantly more, uh, probably a whole podcast on it and, and an article or two. Definitely. Totally agree. Well, you know, to wrap up, I think it's important to remind people there's a lot, the investment universe is expansive, right? But the filters by which you should look at things are, how does this improve my life? How does this fit into my risk tolerance? And what is the risk profile? And, and am I covering the most important bases? Those, those really precede any of these alternative investments. And, you know, I think the, why do we think some of the things that we've shared on this podcast? Well, it's because 
we are a registered investment advisor. We have to legally be a fiduciary to every client we serve. And so who's the typical client we're serving? Well, it's a lot of people that are retiring from large oil and gas companies or people that are currently working at a large oil and gas company. And so a traditional low cost, globally diversified portfolio is probably the best way in the world to give yourself a secure stream of retirement income over a 30 year period. And if you're making a significant income, significantly higher than the average American with huge company benefits and a massive 401k match, investing in that type of a manner is a really great way to reach financial freedom quickly. And so that's a lot of where our convictions stem from. It's that this is the this is the space we're working in. This is the typical client that we that we serve. And that is what is truly in the best interest um, for that group. And the last thing I'll add is that's what's worked up until this point, right? We've most of our clients, they haven't none of them really come to us because they've crushed it or hit it out of the park with alternative investments. They've they've followed our investment manifesto and really have just spent their time in the market and just worked and taken advantage of optimizing their company benefits. And so, you know, I wouldn't use alternatives. It's a great diversifier, but I wouldn't bet the farm on it to become wealthy, right? It's a, it may be a great risk adjusted way to maintain wealth or kind of create more diversification within a within a large portfolio, but you know, for your for the accumulators, we think slow and steady wins the race and our clients are really a testament to that. Absolutely. That's well put. Awesome. Well, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.